or Job 35. Beginning next week, or excuse me, beginning in a few weeks when we pick up in Job again, the book of Job is going to take a fairly dramatic turn. Throughout the first 31 chapters of this book, we listened to the musings of four men. Job and his three companions as they went back and forth talking about Job's righteousness, talking about why Job was under the difficulties he was under. We've talked about that extensively over these past many months now, in fact. They talked about the character of God. They talked about the working of God. They talked about the nature of God in this world. They talked about the purpose of God for his creation. Beginning in chapter 32, a fifth man spoke up. This man's name is Elihu. We've been listening to him now. Well, 33, in fact. 32 was a... uh, Focusing on wisdom. It was kind of a a set aside. And we've been focusing on Elihu now for a number of weeks. Elihu takes a far more balanced, we could say biblical approach, to the situation of Job. Now, they did not have the written word of God at this point. We know that. But his perspective is far more balanced than that, certainly, of Job's companions, and even in a manner of speaking more so than Job. He backed up enough, he looked at the underlying circumstances enough to remind men of their responsibility toward God, and furthermore, addressed what God's responsibility is toward man. Today, both this morning and then as we conclude this evening in this sermon, Uh, Elihu will finalize his thoughts in regard to Job's circumstances and the way his companions have been reacting to Job. Now, our church has been heavily focused on the concepts of discipleship over the past couple of months. In John, we've been on a little mini-series beginning in John 13 uh, on discipleship and we're continuing on through that mini-series. In our Sunday school hour, we've been focusing in specifically on concepts and elements of discipleship for the past two months or so. And back near the beginning of our Sunday school time, we spoke regarding the importance of knowing God. And it has come up again and again and again in my sermons, first of all, to reinforce the concept, but also because we see it all over Scripture. We spoke regarding this importance, and if we are going to serve God properly, it is imperative that we know the God that we're serving. If we don't know God, then we cannot hope to understand how He wants us to serve Him the way we ought. And so each of these men has reflected elements of God's character and his person in their discussions, in their arguments. Today will be no different as we learn more about the character of God through Elihu's speech. At the end of the day, however, what we are doing as we look into the book of Job, what we are doing as we learn of discipleship and as we look into the book of John is we are building faith. In the New Testament, the author of Hebrews said this in Hebrews 11, verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I'm going to come up, uh, this passage, this, this verse, I'm going to bring it up again. It's going to come up a couple of times in our sermon this morning. Because particularly as Elihu speaks, both this morning and then as we look at this evening, these Words, but without faith it is impossible to please him, are going to come up again and again and again. So, today we're going to look at three attributes of God. This morning we're going to look at the first attribute. This evening we're going to look at the final two attributes of God and their implications upon we as God's people, particularly as it relates to living a life of faith. 
if you have your outline there, you'll notice the title of the sermon is God Is. And my first point is that God is self-righteous. God is self-righteous. Now, when we hear that term, self-righteous, it's, it's one of those terms that makes me bristle a little bit. The idea of self-righteousness is not a positive thing, is it? If you were to look at someone and say, that is one self-righteous person, we are not being positive. In fact, we are, we are expressing an exceedingly negative concept. But you know, self-righteousness is a description. And as we talk about it this morning, we'll see that it is a very apt description, a very positive and a very appropriate description of the God that we serve. Elihu begins, we read chapter 35, he begins in chapter 35 by questioning the fundamental approach of Job and his companions to the issues of Job's innocence and God's justice. Job has claimed his innocence and that God has been against him. The companions of Job have claimed, Job, how dare you say these things? You must be guilty before God. You must have sin in your life because bad things are happening to you. Well, Elihu takes issue with both of them. He summarizes Job's argument in verses 2 and 3. Thinkest thou this to be right, that thou sayest my righteousness is more than God's? For thou saidst, what advantage will it be unto thee? And what profit shall I have if I be cleansed from my sin? Job says, I'm innocent before God. God is against me. And in a manner of speaking, if, if he were to take his argument to its natural conclusion, it would have been this. My righteousness is more than God's. Now, Job has never, ever said that. But his argument, the foundation upon which his premise is built, would lead to that conclusion. That I'm innocent before God. That God is punishing me without cause. I don't know what he's doing. I can't understand him. He is against me. And this would be the end result of his argument, as it were. So while Job's statements are not false, because he's never actually said that, nor has he ever implied that, he's not charging God foolishly. The framework of his logic has a fatal flaw which, if taken to its final conclusion, would indeed pervert the character of God because he would be saying, my righteousness is greater than God's righteousness. Now, this very same flaw was found in the companions of Job. The companions of Job have looked at Job's situation and said, God is righteous, you are unrighteous, you must be unrighteous because there is these terrible circumstances, therefore there must be sin in your life. Now the difference between Job and his companions is that this flaw has led them to the place where they are already misrepresenting the character of God. Job has not yet misrepresented the character of God, he just has a little bit of a flaw in his framework. Now what is this flaw? What is this flaw that has caused Job to insinuate that his righteousness is greater than God's? What is this flaw that has caused Job's companions to openly declare that Job is a sinful man simply because he's had difficult circumstances in his life? The flaw is self-righteousness. Job and his companions were both working off of the premise that Job's righteousness was somehow tied to himself. That somehow God's disposition towards mankind is heavily altered by man's own ability to do those things that he deems right. In a nutshell, that man's relationship with God depends upon himself. 
that if you want to be right with God, you have to get yourself there. Self-righteousness. And see, Job had the underlying framework of self-righteousness because he was saying, I'm innocent and God is persecuting me without cause. His companions were deep into this misunderstanding of God, compelled by their self-righteousness, because they were saying, Job, because you have some sin in your life, clearly God is punishing you. He has a heavy hand upon you. But notice what Elihu says in verses 5-7. through Look into the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than thou. If thou sinnest, what doest thou against him? Or if thy transgressions be multiplied, what doest thou unto him? If thou be righteous, what givest thou him? Or what receivest he of thy hand? Elihu says, Job, look up. Look up to the sky. What do you see? You're going to see clouds. And Job, those clouds are a lot higher than you are. In other words, God is above you. God is higher than you. And he asks this question, Job, when you sin, or when I sin, or when any man sins, do you personally injure God? Does God look down upon a man with personal contempt when he transgresses God's law? When I sin before God, does it physically injure God or his purposes upon this earth? It doesn't. It doesn't. When a man does something good, does God see that good as some favor to him? Does God have a, have a list of things that need to get done? And if, if you don't do something, then uh, it's just not going to get done. The question is, does God need you? Well, no, he doesn't. In the broadest scope of history and understanding, God doesn't need us. When we do something wrong, it doesn't personally hurt God. When we do righteous actions, it doesn't personally benefit God. We're not talking about a one-to-one relationship where where God's benefits and, and detriments are based upon mankind's actions. Elihu says, Job, you need to recognize here that God is beyond you, that God is above you, that God doesn't need you. Notice what Elihu says in verse 8. Thy wickedness may hurt a man as thou art, and thy righteousness may profit the son of man. By reason of multitudes of oppression, they make the oppressed to cry. He, he says, you know, wickedness can hurt a man, but it's not going to hurt God. Righteousness may profit a man, but it's not going to profit God. And then he gives an illustration in verses 9 through 12. Oppressed men, men under violent and brutal tyranny, cry because of their oppression. A man who is a slave, who's being whipped, who's being beaten, who's being practically starved, he's going to feel oppressed and he is going to cry, lament that oppression. But Elihu says here, they cry out by reason of the arm of the mighty, in verse 9, but none saith, where is God my maker? When these men cry out oppression, uh, for the oppression that they're under, who is it that they complain against? If in this room I was in chains and Brady was up here with a whip and he was whipping me while I was in chains and then I got hungry for lunch and he said, you can have some of the crumbs of my meal and this went on for weeks and Brady was this terrible tyrant, would I 
be angry at God or would I be angry at Brady? Well, indeed, I would be angry at Brady. He would be the one that I would complain against because God's not the one holding the whip. Brady is the one that's holding the whip. God is not the one torturing me. Brady is the one torturing me. And so I cry out against him. And as Elihu continues his illustration, when the cries go unheard and the impression continues, do they assume that that oppression continues because of God? Well, no. They assume that they can, the oppression continues because the person oppressing them is continuing. But you know, we don't always have something physical to blame for our suffering, do we? There's not always someone behind me cracking a whip when they're suffering against me. And that's what Elihu says in verses 13 through 16. Surely God will not hear vanity, neither will the Almighty regard it. Although thou sayest thou shalt not see him, yet judgment is before him, therefore trust thou in him. You know, when a man has something physical to blame for his suffering, he will indeed blame that physical thing. When a man has a tangible target to blame for his misfortunes, we as humans are very content to blame that tangible target. But when the target is not tangible, when the difficulties and the trials and the tribulations in our lives cannot necessarily be attributed to one thing that we can see, that we can be upset against, and by the way, I'm not saying that's right, I'm saying that's human nature. When our sufferings are rooted in something unknown, we must find some reason for them. We must find something to complain against, that's human nature, and so often that something is God. For some reason, we must have offended God, or God is taking offense at something we've done, and he's taking, out, taking it out on us physically. As I thought about this, I, I guess we might call this the lightning strike syndrome. I don't know, I used to grow up watching a bunch of cartoons, and perhaps you've seen this in cartoons, maybe you've seen this in something that's not a cartoon, where a person says something that is morally wrong, he lies, or whatever the case may be, something that might be an affront to a God that knows all, does something contrary to God's desire, and immediately a lightning bolt falls from heaven and zaps him, right? And this happens in cartoons from time to time. A person, uh, whatever the animal or thing might be, they, they do something wrong or they lie or they steal something and a lightning bolt, com bolt comes down and zaps them. The implication there is that God has just zapped that character because he's done something morally wrong. Now, when it's done in the cartoons, it's done somewhat tongue-in-cheek light-hearted way of describing the actions of that character as morally wrong. It's a way of showing that this person has done something um, that has offended some greater standard than their own. But you know, as we think about this lightning strike scenario, don't we sometimes treat God that way? Aren't we tempted sometimes to impose upon our lives God's favor or God's judgment based upon our personal actions? Now, we may never necessarily think that a lightning bolt is going to fall from heaven and strike us, but do we sometimes not correlate the bad things that we do with the bad situations that happen in our lives? And somehow we think that uh, it's kind of that, that idea that really is floating around right now in a lot of false teaching, the idea of karma, the idea that positive, when you put positive energy into the world, you get positive things out of the world, and when you put negative energy into the world, you get negative energy, uh, negative things back, and that if negative things are happening to you, it's because you're putting negative out. 
we can kind of translate that and make it into some Christianese thought where if we, if we do good things, then good things are going to come our way. And if we do bad things, then bad things are going to come our way. And if we'll just shift our mindset into good things, then good things are going to start to come. That's that kind of that health and wealth preaching that says if you can just think enough good thoughts, then you're going to be healthy and you're going to be happy and you're going to be comfortable. And that's not found anywhere in the Bible. In fact, that's exactly what Job is teaching against here. But we have a tendency in our mind to think that way because we correlate cause and effect. That's what humans do. We correlate cause and effect. See, what Elihu is pointing out here to these four men in Job 35 is that such thinking is in fact rooted in self-righteousness. When we try to correlate the good and the bad that we do with God's actions toward us, we are thinking self-righteously. We're beginning to think that somehow we in and of ourselves can do something that can please God. But what does the Bible say? Isaiah 64, 6. But we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. See, the premise that Job and his companions were operating under to various degrees was that somehow they all were capable of pleasing God and it was their lack of pleasing God that incurred His wrath. But what we know from God's character as well as the teaching of God's Word is that in and of ourselves, we cannot please God. Regardless of how moral or immoral our choices are, our actions are of no pleasure to God unless they are done within the context of faith in His revealed will. Now, stay with me here because what I've said thus far is only a part of the picture. We're getting to the rest of it. What I've said thus far is only a part of it. See, the only one who is allowed to be self-righteous is God. By definition, one who is self-righteous is one who has found righteousness in himself, correct? Self-righteous. Is that not a perfect definition of our God? He is in and of himself righteous. His righteousness is not rooted in anything but Himself. You, me, any man, any woman, any child on this earth, if we are to find any righteousness in this life or anything that is counted as righteousness for the next, it will be nothing more than an extension of God's righteousness which in His mercy He has applied to our behalf. See, there is nothing righteous in me. There is nothing righteous in you. We are all as an unclean thing. If there is anything righteous that is found in us, it's only found in Christ in us. It's only found in God in us. Because God is self-righteous. He is the only one that is self-righteous. He is the only one that has inherent righteousness. Therefore, if we are to be righteous, we must be found in Him. And that's the other side of this coin. From the beginning of time to the end of time, righteousness before God has always come one way. There's always been one way in which a man has been able to find any righteousness. And it's not righteousness in himself, but whereby righteousness can be applied to him, and that is by faith. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 say this. 
What shall we say then? Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof the glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Paul's argument is this. Way back in the day when Abraham walked the earth and he was interacting with God, it wasn't Abraham's good works that counted him righteous before God. Even back then, even before Jesus Christ was born, died on the cross for our sins, rose again the third day in victory over the grave, even before God had revealed all of the amazing things in the New Testament, even before He had given the law, because He hadn't given the law until the time of Moses and Israel, even before all of that, righteousness was still by faith. Abraham wasn't right before God because he did what God told him to do. He was right before God because he believed God in faith. And he says, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. The man that feels like he can work to earn something with God is doing it because he feels like he is paying off a debt. Or he is working up a debt. If, if the work that we do can tend itself toward righteousness, then the work that we do can also tend itself toward unrighteousness. And that brings us to the, this, this dichotomy where we say, well, then my good must outweigh my bad. And if my good outweighs my bad, then I'm right with God. And if my bad outweighs my good, then I'm not right with God. And that's heresy. But see, this is the mindset that Job and his companions were operating under. Now, they weren't saying that. But this was the underlying philosophy of their argument. That Job, somehow the good things that you have done to this point have kept God happy enough to give you good things. And Job, at some point you must have done something bad enough for God to revoke all of those good things. All of a sudden, it's no longer Job is a righteous man because he is responding to God by faith. Now it's Job is a righteous man because he does good things and we're into salvation by works. And that's a danger. Because Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, tell us, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If Abraham will be able to stand in heaven one day and say, I was righteous before God for the things I did. Or if Job could stand in heaven one day and say, I'm righteous before God because my good outweighed my bad. Or if you or I could ever stand in heaven one day and boast in anything that we've done, then God no longer gets the glory for heaven because I earned heaven. I deserve heaven. And on the authority of Scripture, I can tell you right now, there's not a man or a woman in this room that is going to get to heaven who deserves it or who's earned it or who's worthy of it. And that is what Elihu is correcting Job and his companions on in this passage. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, who his own self, speaking of Jesus Christ, bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Philippians 3 verse 9, Paul is speaking here and he says, And to be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Paul says there's no amount of righteousness in doing things that's going to get me any favor with God. It's the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now what did this mean for Job? It meant that when Job was serving God and offering up pleasing sacrifices to God in Job 1, when in Job 1, Job was described as a righteous man, 
when we see all of these elements of, of who Job was in Job 1, it was not Job's actions of sacrificing the animal that pleased God. It was the faith with which Job entered into the action. It was Job responding to the revelation that God had given to him by faith, and as he responded to this revelation by faith, God counted that for righteousness. That's what made Job a righteous man. It meant, as we just talked about, that when Abraham would leave his kindred and go into a land that he didn't know, it wasn't the action of leaving his kindred and going into the promised land that earned him favor with God. It was the fact that God had revealed to him his will, and Abraham responded to God's will in faith. It meant that when David received the perpetual kingship from God in, in 2 Samuel, it was not the blessing upon a good man that David was given there. It was a man whose heart was perfect toward God who received this promise, a man of unwavering faith. It, <coughs> excuse me, it meant that when the judges waged their campaigns, as we're learning about on Tuesday nights, when the judges waged their campaigns against the various enemies of Israel, it was not the judges' actions inherently that earned them the favor and the blessing of God in those battles. It was the fact that when God appeared to them, they responded to the revelation of God in faith and they acted in faith and that is what God counted as righteousness. And it meant that Daniel, when he found favor in Babylon, it was not the favor of a man who did anything righteous in and of himself, but a man who was counted as righteous before God for responding to what he knew of God in faith. Now, I went through a lot of Bible characters, most of whom I trust you're familiar, familiar with. Let's extend this truth to you and I today. And we're going to extend it in two ways. The first way is the foundational way. The way that I talked about when I was talking to Robin and Becky. The way that Holly talks about when she speaks to Farron. See, what this idea of self-righteousness means to us is that in the midst of all of the good or the bad things that you or I might do, in the midst of all of the moral or immoral acts that we might perform, in the midst of all of the perceived righteousness or perceived unrighteousness of our lives, the only things that have merit in the eyes of God unto righteousness are those actions that are backed by a genuine heart of faith and in genuine alignment with the, God, with the will of God and the Word of God. I bring you back to Hebrews 11.6. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. He that cometh to God must respond to the revelation of God that has been given to him, that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that do righteous acts. No, of them that diligently seek him, that align themselves with God's will. The Bible doesn't say that God is a rewarder of good works inherently. The Bible doesn't say that he is a rewarder of a moral lifestyle. Elihu already told us in verse 8 that wickedness and morality have their own physical and material benefits and detriments. The Bible tells us that God rewards the man who comes to God by faith and does what he does with the faith that God will in turn reward according to his good pleasure and his perfect will in his perfect time. So it is faith that pleases God. Well then, the next question is faith in what? Does it matter? Is it enough simply to have faith in something? To have faith in anything? I mean, after all, there's plenty of people out there that have faith in something. Does it matter what we have faith in? Well, certainly it does. 
the verses I have already read today point us to the answer that the faith that we are to have is to be in the revealed Word of God. As any man, as any woman, as any child in any age and in any generation has learned and accepted the revealed Word of God, God has counted them for righteousness. So what does the Word of God tell us? Well, the Word of God tells us it begins with the very lesson of this chapter that there is none righteous. No, not one, the Bible says. That we are all sinners. And as sinners, we all deserve judgment. There is no room in God's system for self-righteousness. Every man is responsible before God and every man will stand before Him one day and give an account for the revelation that God has given to him. And on that day, Revelation 20, verse 12 tells us that the books will be opened and there will be a book opened called the book of life. And every man will stand in judgment before God and he will open the books, the books that have all of man's works, and then he'll open another book and it's called the book of life. And Revelation 20, verse 15 tells us whosoever is not found written in that book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. Conversely, those whose name is found in the book of life, they will be those who enter into eternal life, what we call heaven. So then the question becomes, whose names are written in the book of life? If, it is, if that is the book by which heaven or hell is determined, whose names are written in the book of life? Let me give you some verses. John 3.16. I think probably everyone in this room knows it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Who are the ones that have everlasting life? The ones who believe in Him. John 14.6 Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. Jesus speaking. Acts 4, verse 12, the apostles preaching, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name, speaking of Jesus Christ, under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. John 7, verse 38, Jesus speaking, he that believeth on me, as the scriptures hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, a picture in the scriptures of eternal life. Jesus made it very clear. Faith in what? Faith in what? What is it that pleases God? Faith in what to please God? For without faith it is impossible to please Him. Faith in what? The name of Jesus Christ. I was talking to Robin and Becky this past Thursday, and I was making it very clear to them that it's not simply enough to have faith. That faith must be rooted in Jesus Christ alone. See, faith in Muhammad is not going to do it. Faith in Allah is not going to do it. Faith in God, whatever that God is, is not going to do it. Faith in myself, faith in money, faith in government, faith in Buddha, faith in Gandhi, it's not going to do it. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There aren't many roads to heaven. There's one road to heaven. And it's through Jesus Christ alone. He testified of it in the Word of God. A few months ago, I was in Colorado and I was speaking to some young ladies. My friend and I were witnessing. They were teenagers. And she, she kept saying this idea that, well, that's fine for you. 
you believe that and that'll get you to heaven and I believe my thing and that'll get me to heaven. And I kept telling her, it doesn't work that way. See, if, if I believe what I believe and it's going to get me to heaven, if it does get me to heaven, that must have meant there was truth in it. And according to my truth, there's only one way. So if you get to heaven too, then my truth was wrong and it was error and I'm not getting to heaven. See, if Jesus Christ was wrong, then the Bible is wrong. And if the Bible is wrong, then we're all hopeless. If Jesus Christ was not wrong, if He was right, then there's only one way, and it's through Him alone. It's through the name of Jesus Christ alone. No other way. And He's not wrong. And the assurance that He's not wrong, He rose from the dead the third day. The fact that He is alive and He's sitting on the right hand of the Father proves to all mankind that Christ is who He said He was, that what He said is what is right, and that if a man does not come to God through Jesus Christ, then he's never going to get to God. How do we please Him? By faith in Christ. This is the faith that makes a man righteous. And this is why we call it saving faith. Now, my exhortation to those of us who are sitting here this morning. I don't know your hearts. No man can know your heart. God knows your heart. You know your heart. If you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ to be saved from your sins, if you know you're a sinner, you know that that sin has placed you on the path toward eternal judgment and hell, you know that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that He bore your sins in His body, that He was buried and then He rose again the third day, that He is alive and at the right hand of the Father. If you know that, if you believe that, the Bible says, if you believe in your heart, if you call out to Him, He will save you from your sins. He will save you. Saving faith. And Christ's righteousness will be applied to your life. If you've never made that decision, but you know you need to, may I encourage you to make today the day. We are not guaranteed a tomorrow. You're not guaranteed another five minutes. If you have not made that decision, it's a one-time decision. If you have never made that decision, may I encourage you to make it today. You say, well, Pastor, I don't quite understand fully. There's, there's a jumble of things that I've learned in years past. There's so many things bouncing around in my head, I just don't understand. Come see me. Come see me and we'll set up a time and we'll sit down and we'll talk through it all. And I'll show you from the Scriptures what God has told us in His Word so that you can know for sure that you're on your way to heaven, so that you can know for sure you're a child of God. Because without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Now, there are many in this room who are believers, who have already accepted Christ as your Savior. And the message of today is not simply for those who have not believed. See, it's so easy for us as believers to fall into the rut of self-righteousness. We do things that we know we are supposed to do, but we don't do them by faith. We seek to earn God's favor by doing things, but we do them devoid of that element that truly pleases God, the element of faith. When I prayed this morning for the service, and as I often do in the morning service, I ask God, and I often do in many services, I ask God that every man and woman and child in this room would have come here with a heart of sincerity before God. That this would not just be an exercise of religion. That this would not just be 
an exercise of you doing something that you feel you need to do or else you feel guilty when you don't do it, but that this would be an exercise whereby you are genuinely coming to God, desiring to fellowship with His people in accordance with obedience to His Word, desiring to um, come together and be um, the, the body of Christ, serving Him, worshiping Him, sharpening ourselves one with another as iron sharpens iron so that we can take His Gospel into a lost and dying world. And why I pray that prayer is because we can attend church, we can read our Bibles, we can pray, we can give, we can serve, we can evangelize, we can do all these good things, but if we are doing it outside of a heart of faith, responding properly to the Word of God as it's been given, responding to the revelation of God in love, then there's no profit in it. See, because without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. What pleases God is the degree to which you reflect the righteousness of God through faith. If what you do is not by faith, then it's empty religion. Now I'm not, please don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to make you fear your salvation or make you fear the fact that the things that you're doing are are useless or worthless. I'm not trying to do that today. But what I do desire you to do is as the psalmist prayed, search me, O God, and try my heart. That God would reveal to you whether the things you're doing are simply for the sake of doing them, whether you have fallen into this rut of feeling like if you do enough good things, God's pleased with you. If you do bad things, God will be displeased with you and bad things will happen. If you've fallen into this rut, it's my prayer today that as the Holy Spirit guides and leads you in this application that you would recognize it and pull yourself out of this rut of self-righteousness in order that you might again be doing things not for the sake of doing them but by faith in order that you might please God with them. Empty religion does not please God. Faith pleases God.